back to another episode of independent thought my name is desmond price for those of you who are not familiar with the show or this is your first time here welcome and to all my subscribers welcome back thank you for sticking with me through another episode of this show now it's been about a month or so since i've actually sat down to record an episode so i might be a little bit rusty so kind of bear with me I will also say that I apologize for getting this episode out a day late. I'll mention reasons why at the end of this episode for those who are interested. But first, before we go any bit any further into this topic of discussion, I first want to note some of the sources for this episode. Uh, that will be ABC, CBS, NPR, The Washington Post, Breaking Points, and independent journalist Jonah Furman, who I highly recommend, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Today, we are talking about all of the strikes happening around the country right now, which has been cleverly dubbed Striketober. This is something that I've been following now for a few weeks, uh, but actually to be a little more accurate, I've been following this since about April when the first strike that I heard of happening this year happened down in Alabama. But so let's just talk about what's going on right now. There are so many strikes happening in the country right now and while that's happening the media was largely ignoring this up until this past week when john deere uh had announced that a lot of its workers had gone on strike and now that that has happened it seems as though that is getting plenty of coverage around the country but still there are so many strikes that are happening around the country that I really want to bring some focus to now and some of the reasons why I think that they're happening. So first and foremost, before we dive into the specifics, a lot of the information that I've gotten for this episode has come either directly from or somewhat tied to one journalist named Jonah Furman, who has basically been single-handedly keeping track of damn near every strike or potential strike that's happening all over the country you can find this journalist on Twitter. Uh, seems like he is a part of a company called Labor Notes. I highly recommend him if you are interested in this subject and wanting to know all the different nuances going on with these strikes around the country. So let me set the stage a little bit. There is this John Deere strike happening right now. And that's the one that's being highly publicized, highly publicized, and rightly so. 10,000 workers at 14 different plants across the states of Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Colorado, and Georgia have gone on strike. They are striking for a multitude of reasons. The Washington Post actually went out and spoke with some of the, some of the workers who were on strike in Iowa. And one worker in particular said that, you know, they've been wanting to get some of the wages they feel like they lost back from, from years ago, but they felt like they never had the right opportunity in order to collectively, I guess, like come together 
and truly hold the line as they feel like they do right now with the labor market being what it is, where there's such a worker shortage, they feel like they are, have a stance of power currently that they just like have not had in a long time, if ever. And so John Deere, rightfully so, getting a lot of coverage, but there are strikes happening all over this country. And I just want to briefly mention them in case you haven't heard about them and you want to hear a little bit more about them. I definitely recommend going and checking some of these out. So here is some of the strikes happening around the country. There are 50 machinists on strike in West Virginia. And these people are on strike asking because they want better wages. They feel like they're not being paid enough. There are 75 symphony musicians on strike in Texas, who again uh, are on strike because management wanted to cut full-time workers in half and bring on part-time workers for less pay. There is 100 teachers currently on strike in Pennsylvania. There's 100 bus drivers on strike in Maryland, and then 200 uh, in Nevada as well. And again, these bus drivers are asking for higher wages and more professionalism, but we'll talk on that a little bit later in the episode. There's 300 aerospace manufacturers on strike in California, 350 janitors in Colorado, 420 whiskey workers in Kentucky. And, and get this, these whiskey workers, for instance, they're going on strike. And one of the reasons why they said it was because the company is asking them to start working seven days a week and they want to cut their overtime as well as raise their health insurance premiums, which I, that is seven days a week. Who, who I, I, I don't know. I, I can't even wrap my head around it. There are 450 steel workers in West Virginia who are on strike, 400 hospital workers in Oregon who, again, are complaining about wages, staff shortages, and potential outsourcing of their jobs. There are additionally 700 nurses in Massachusetts, as well as 1,100 coal miners down in Alabama. And I've referenced these coal miners in my previous episode called Boycotting Oreos. Please go back and check out that episode uh, for a little bit more detail on these coal miners. There's also 1,400 workers at Kellogg who are on strike. And this is happening in four different states, in Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Now, these Kellogg workers are also, again, going on strike because of low wages, common theme here, bad company culture, and again, seven-day work weeks. Kellogg is asking some of these workers to work seven days in a row. One worker was quoted as saying that he had worked 120 days in a row without a day off. How is that even legal? Like, I, I, I think I mentioned this before in my Boycotting Oreos episode, we were talking about some of the things that were happening to Frito-Lay workers, where they were having to deal with these, what they call like suicide ships. I do not understand how we have failed workers in this country that someone can work 120 days in a row and there's no law against that. We should maybe be addressing the fact that there's no law against that. So let me continue here for a second. There's 2,000 telecom workers on strike in California. 2,000 carpenters were on strike in Washington. I think that's now been settled. There's 2,000 hospital workers in New York in the Buffalo area. And now 24,000 workers, hospital workers, that are part of Kaiser Permanente out of California, Oregon, and Hawaii that are now going on strike. 
the companies that uh, that employed these workers uh, said that, well, these workers are some of the highest paid in their profession, and they didn't see a reason to pay them more. The workers, one of the workers in particular, uh, was speaking with a local ABC affiliate out of California and said that all they wanted was to be paid the same as the hospital workers were getting in Southern California, because these, these workers were in Northern California, uh, but that the hospitals in Northern California wouldn't offer them the same wage that they had in Southern California, but they did offer them 11 cents an hour more, which they found to be insulting, therefore strike. Now, there was 60,000 uh, workers of a group called IATSE, which is uh, Hollywood crew members, you know, lighting, uh, people who work with scripts, people who work on uh, camera crews, cinematographers, so on and so forth. They have currently said they're not going on strike, but they have not accepted their new contract yet. So there's a chance they might be going on strike. And this is also coming on the backs of Frito-Lay in Kansas, which was resolved a couple months ago, and Nabisco, which was resolved uh, about a couple months ago. And Frito-Lay was out of Kansas. Nabisco was in Oregon, Illinois, Georgia, New Jersey. I just listed off a bunch of different things. And if I kept your attention through all that, thank you. But I think the reason why I wanted to list this all out was because it is absolutely incredible to me that we have not seen a strike wave like this in this country in decades. This is truly remarkable. Labor reporters across the country are going wild right now, trying to keep track of all of it. As I'm speaking, on this episode, there are actually more strikes that might be popping up as I was reading through Jonah Furman's Twitter feed just earlier today. So as I'm putting out this episode, this information might already be a little bit dated because there might be more strikes happening around the country right now. Workers are in a unique situation of power currently. And there's a few things at play here that I wanna talk about, but, but first let me just acknowledge this leverage. Because yes, everyone knows that the labor market is, is tight right now. No matter where you are in this country, everyone knows one thing. That's like mostly every business that you're looking at is probably looking for workers right now. In fact, I was in a local auto zone here, auto zone here in Missoula, Montana. And a guy who I was in there to, to buy a car battery from, asked me if I knew anyone who wanted a job. <laughs> and I thought just like, is that how desperate we are right now that you're just asking random customers who comes in the store if they know people who are looking for work? I'm like, yeah, buddy, I think everyone's looking for work right now. Well, I mean, all of you employers are looking for work anyway. But yeah, there, there's a lack of workers right now. And, and you know, who's to say what the exact reasoning is for that? I mean, I think it's different for so many different people. You know, during the pandemic, a lot of people had to you know, more or less find different ways to stay afloat, you know, especially when so many things got shut down. Some people turned to online work. Some people became self-employed. Some people just learned how to live on less. And so uh, who's to say what the different reasons are for it? But I got to tell you, the one thing that we know for sure is that this whole, you know, get back to work mentality that certain states have employed have not really bore the fruit that they thought it was going to. I think it was, you know, about half the states in our country ended unemployment insurance earlier than the federal deadline. So the federal deadline was going to run out the unemployment insurance on September 30th. 
But 25 states across this country, coincidentally, I think they were all red states with Republican governors, uh, decided to end benefits in either June or July. And from all the data they've collected since then, that has done literally nothing. And so that attempt to get people back into the workforce just hasn't really translated. That, that wasn't obviously the reason that people were staying out of the workforce. Obviously, unemployment checks weren't the reason why people didn't want to go back to work. But, you know, I might offer a different you know, alternative here. And I'm going to provide a little bit of little data before we go further. You know, one thing that should also be kept in mind when it comes to this story, and we're going to get a little off track here, but I promise we'll get back is that workers across this country are kind of just fed up with how things are going, truthfully, for a multitude of reasons. But we are seeing a wave of what I would like to think of as worker empowerment for the first time in my lifetime. In August of this year, 4.3 million people quit their job. And that is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That was the most in any one month in the last two decades, in the last two decades. It, it's, and it's not just happening in any one market. It was happening in restaurants, in hospitality, in manufacturing, in retail jobs, in white collar jobs. It is happening across the board. There was no culturalness to it. There was not like a state by state thing to it. There was no like political thing to it. This was happening in every little pocket of America. And so you couldn't like fit this into one neat box or it's, oh, these lazy people over here, all these lazy people over there. I think working class people are just kind of tired of dealing with all of the crap that comes with some of these lower paying jobs, these low wage jobs. And, you know, let me say for the remaining people who are in the workforce, and I'm seeing this, you know, across every, like every customer service place that I go into right now. You know, a lot of the workers who are left over in these jobs are having to work longer hours. They're having to work, you know, shorter staffs. And, you know, it feels like customers are having less and less patience with them. You know, I would hope that whoever's listening to this, you're not one of those people who's, you know, been impatient with customer service people who are doing their absolute best to make, you know, make do with this situation, you know, being what it is. But if you happen to see somebody else, in one of these places, like a restaurant, for instance, being rude with staff because their stuff isn't coming up fast enough. Maybe we should all be speaking up a little bit and telling those rude people to shut the hell up. As you know, working class people are dealing with this situation the best way that they can. It's, you know, the people who are having to deal with all of these shortages all over the country right now. But, you know, I, I want to come back and just speak to people who lost their jobs last year, because I think that's part of the story as well. There were so many people who lost their jobs at the beginning of the pandemic, and then <laughs> they were promised jobs to come back to. Some of them did not. Uh, some of them had to make hard transitions into different places, and some of them never got their jobs back whatsoever. I mean, we, we still haven't gotten back to the unemployment rate that we were at prior to March of 2020. And, and so I think the point that I'm trying to make here is is that when you lay a bunch of people off, when you, and sometimes in these situations, you probably didn't have to. It's not all that surprising to me when some people decide not to come back to their jobs, you know, especially in this particular market where, you know, people are coming back to 
these just same like crappy wages that they were having before. And, now, and to be fair, some companies have risen their wages and we've heard stories about that all over the place. You know, I know that Target raises their wage up. I know that some fast food places are paying more than they used to, but you know, in a lot of parts of this country, people are still being underpaid versus the cost of living where they're at. And truthfully, they're kind of disrespected at their jobs. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. You know, I think I was reading a post, I was reading an article in the Washington Post, and they were speaking with a woman who said that she had quit her job in August. She was one of these 4.3 million people who quit their job in August. And she had chronicled the fact that she worked 90 hours a week during the height of the pandemic last year, 90 hours a week. And then she found out just recently that her job was about to be outsourced. And so she literally like could not imagine how she, she said that she was putting her health on the line. She felt like she was putting her life on the line, working, you know, like during the height of the pandemic and just, you know, being a customer service worker, working her ass off for a company. And then to find out that they're just going to essentially outsource her job to a person in another country anyway, like that is, that is awful. I mean, like truthfully speaking, it, it's awful. And, and it kind of comes back to, what I said earlier that we would get back to the bus drivers, the bus drivers in Maryland who are currently on strike. One of the chief like issues that they were having, they said that they just don't feel like their employers actually respect them. I mean, the quote that I have here is, it says that one of the bus drivers who spoke to uh, CBS said that we need to be appreciated. We need to be understood. We're professionals. We need to be treated and paid like professionals. And in this, again, when I was listening to members of the IATSE union talking about why that they were going on strike, it was a similar thing. They felt like they were disrespected, that they were underpaid, that they were being forced to work crazy hours to make up for all the production time that was lost, you know, during the height of 2020 and when, you know, COVID shut a lot of things down. And now they're being asked to work, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours a day you know, just having crazy amounts of working almost no breaks and getting paid way below what is a cost of, you know, a living wage in California. And they just, just did not feel like these studios cared whatsoever. And this is while, again, studios making crazy amounts of profits, you know, large actors getting crazy amounts of profits, but it's not trickling down to the workers. The workers are just not seeing any increases in their profits and their wages. And on, on top of that fact, it feels as though whenever workers want to like eke out a little bit of dignity for themselves, they're just shit on. I mean, tr truthfully speaking. And this kind of goes back into the John Deere story a little bit. In Waterloo, Iowa, which is, you know, the site of one of the John Deere plants, when a manager there heard that workers might consider going on strikes, this is before it was actually authorized, plant managers said there, said that if the workers decided to go on strike, that the site would probably just close down and move somewhere else because, you know, they just didn't want to deal with that. And, and so again, it's just another, another example of companies more or less saying like, yeah, you, you want to advocate for yourself. That's fine. But we're just going to go find workers somewhere else because we don't actually care about what it is that you want. We just want people to work for cheap and do what they're told to do. So Here's the question that always comes up because this gets debated, 
you know, all the time when, you know, we're listening to these news shows, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, people ask questions like, well, do these workers, you know, have the right to ask for more? Are they being paid enough? Like right now, there was an article, and I forget the news source, you have to forgive me on this one, which was commenting on the fact that John Deere workers get paid sixty to $70,000 a year, to which, thankfully, some of those workers reached out again to Jonah Furman and showed their pay stubs. And they said, like, that's not true whatsoever. Like, I've been working at John Deere for almost two decades, and I get paid under 40K a year. And, you know, all things considered, working, you know, getting 40K a year as your full-time job not exactly that much money, I'm not going to lie to you, especially when the CEO of John Deere raised his own salary last year by 160% and raised the pay of his executives by between 20 and 192%. Now, this is all on the backs of John Deere making more money in their last fiscal year than in any other year in their company history. This was their most profitable year ever, ever. Now, when the C now, funny enough, you know, side note, the same CEO, when he found out that these workers were going on strike, uh, he actually went around and sold $72,000 worth of uh, company stock that he owns. So uh, I think that tells me all I need to know about where he thinks this is all heading. But you know, there, there really isn't a whole lot of sympathy for a lot of these workers when I see mainstream coverage. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this today. I, I saw an article on CNN that was referencing a, a memo sent out by Goldman Sachs where they said low wage workers are getting uh, quote unquote eye popping raises. And they noted in the article that like workers have gotten in the last calendar year about a 6% raise. And that's eye-popping. And that's like the most they've gotten in decades. And honestly, that should have been the focus there, that that's the most they've gotten in decades. Like, I, I know that maybe 6% might seem like a whole lot, but it really isn't a whole lot. I, I got to tell you, it, it, it truly isn't. I, I mean, not compared to what you're talking about, you know, how the billionaire class did last year, you know, and so I have a quote here for you about how they did in the last year. So 20 million Americans, this is a quote, hold on, this is a quote, 20 million Americans lost their jobs in, you know, in the pandemic. At the same time, roughly 650 billionaires saw in America saw their net worth increase by more than 1 trillion, and now they're worth more than 4 trillion, unquote. Now that quote was delivered to Congress by President Biden back at the end of April. So even Biden, who's not really a champion of the working class, yeah, I said it, uh, acknowledges the fact that the working class is not really doing too high, but billionaires seem to be doing pretty high. And according to Forbes' data, the numbers are actually a little bit higher than that. Total American billionaire wealth currently stands at $4.6 And that was at the end of April of this year. Now, by their count, that's up 35% since January of 2020. So in a little over a year, billionaire wealth in this country rose by 35%. But Goldman Sachs has the audacity to put out a memo saying that workers getting a 6% raise over the course of a year is eye-popping. It's eye-popping. 
you know, what's eye popping is the fact that the 10% of Americans, the top 10% of Americans own 89% of all US stocks. That's pretty eye popping, which is also on the backdrop of the last administration doing nothing but constantly talking about how great the stock market was doing and how that was a true measure of how great our economy is doing. But can it be a true measure of how great the economy is doing if only 10% of Americans own like damn near 90% of the stocks? Is it really a true measure of the economy if it's so concentrated for one subset of people? That's just my take on it. But here, let's just like really just come down to earth with all this for a second and just level. You know, because even though some workers are getting paid a little bit more than they were before, it doesn't exactly close the gap. You know, we're not that far removed from the from the 2020 primary season where like 4,000 Democrats were running for president. And the one thing that was consistent during that time was it seemed like the talking point that everyone wanted to run to was the fact that 40% of Americans could not afford a $400 emergency expense. One $400 emergency expense would have put 40% of the country into fucking bankruptcy. That was the reality for so many Americans. And so when I see these wages, you know, when I see these workers asking for higher wages, I don't see a problem. I, I see just honestly what needs to happen. You know, companies across this country are making record profits right now. Billionaires are making record profits right now. There is no shortage of money that these companies are coming into contact with. John Deere, for instance, like we said before, is having their most profitable year of their entire existence. And people were having that level of struggles before the pandemic. And then tens of millions of people lost their jobs afterwards. And that's not including the fact that people had their hours cut on top of that. People had bills stack up. Even if you were able to pay your rent, maybe you had a couple months where you couldn't pay. So now you have back pay. You had other bills that got piled up. People are swimming in debt. You know, it is about time that the working class of this country actually got a fucking raise. I'm sorry. They, they, and I, I'm glad. I am so glad that these workers around the country are finally seizing the moment, seizing the opportunity to carve out a little bit extra for themselves. They really should. They honestly really should. And, and that is my take home message for everyone listening to this is that there are so many people in this country who are getting underpaid for the work that they do. They're getting underpaid. They are not getting paid what their work is actually worth. And I, I truly am happy for these people that they're going on strike. I hope these strikes turn out well. I hope that it's not you know, for loss because there's never a guarantee that things will work out. There's never a guarantee that these contracts will be what they're looking for. But I'm, I'm glad that they're at least standing up for themselves because too many companies are getting away with paying their workers like crap, asking for ridiculous things, asking them to work seven days a week, asking them to do so much extra stuff. And they're just not being compensated for it adequately. And, and so I guess my, my final like call to action here as we're closing out this episode is, you know, please, you know, go out and and share some of the information about some of these strikes going on. You know, so many of the people that I have talked to, because I was fortunate enough to talk to a worker uh, who's currently on, you know, on strike at John Deere. And I was currently talking, I was talking to another person who was a member of IATSE. And then 
another person who was, you know, married to one of the coal miners on strike. And one of the, you know, the things that were echoed while speaking with them is that they were thankful that people were talking about this. They were thankful that people were willing to cover this. And so I ask you all now that if this subject has interested you, if you have sat through these last, you know, 25 minutes of me explaining this situation, please, you know, go find an article, uh, share that article, uh, follow Jonah Furman, who is that labor reporter that I was referenced a couple of times this episode, check up on some of the things that he has mentioned and share those things. More Perfect Union, who I keep talking about, share their videos. They're absolutely fantastic. They cover a lot of this stuff too. Share this episode. Uh, please, like, like, let's get more people talking about this subject. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who did take the time to listen to this. We are now going to transition to the next part of this episode, which will be my conversation with my guest. We will be having a brand new topic uh, that will be different from this one currently. So please be aware that we're going to switch gears a little bit, but we're going to take a quick break. And after we come back after a few words from our sponsors, uh, yeah, we'll be there with our guests for the week. So stay tuned. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the luck. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode, Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Independent Thought. Thank you for sticking with me through the break. I am here with my guest for this week, Carly Hughes. Carly, thank you for coming on Independent Thoughts today. How are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. You know, one of the reasons I asked you to come on today was because I know that you are a real estate agent and 
We are seeing some different things in the real estate market right now. I think a lot of people have been interested in this topic across the country, but especially here in Missoula. And I was just hoping that we could talk a little bit about what's going on in the market today. But you know, before we get into any of those questions, I kind of wanted just to ask you a little bit about why you decided to become a real estate agent. Is, is this something that you've always wanted to do with your life? Yeah. I mean, I would say real estate is something that it was really unavoidable. Um, I, I grew up in a household and extended family of real estate professionals, um, whether those individuals were investors, developers, real estate agents, uh, real estate educators, leaders, or property managers, I was exposed to a, a full spectrum of real estate. Um, and those strong real estate influences over the years eventually shaped my career path uh, towards where I am today. And uh, I mean, just a, a quick backstory. I began working summers at age 11, and these jobs were small, but they taught me discipline and structure from a young age. I started out doing a piecework, real estate, in a property management and real estate office. I remember all my friends were enjoying activities in the summer. And while I was able to participate in some of those activities, I also had to pass up several to work. And in that moment, I remember resenting my parents for enforcing this structure. But looking back, I know that this regimen ended up being very effective. And it's something that I'll likely introduce to my children. Um, ultimately, you know, my, my parents were both working professionals and uh, with a strong work, work ethic, and, and they wanted the same for me. So, I mean, fast forward after that, fast forward to I, around age 19, I, I believe I took the property management pre-licensing course for the state of Montana, and I was licensed by age 20. And after obtaining that license, I began, I began working in property management while attending school at the University of Montana. And ultimately that property management became my life for the next 15 years. Um, during that time frame, I purchased the property management business where I was employed and I maintained a position of owner, general manager and property manager. And looking back, I realized uh, that, I, that I probably wouldn't have reached such a burnout if I, if I delegated part of my work but order and control was and still are my weaknesses. Um, in 2016, so 2016, I'm almost 30 years old and I have my, my first child and my priorities shifted. And I was working, gosh, I want to say 60, roughly 60 to 70 hours a week. And as a new mom, I was, I was burning out. Um, I was also beginning to feel that mom guilt uh, not having enough time with my daughter. And while I knew I wanted to be a working mom, because working is, is really what I wanted to do, I also knew I didn't want it to consume my life as I had allowed it to in the past. Um, and, you know, my husband approached me and my twin sister approached me. They're both very close to me. They saw my high le level of anxiety and stress, and they encouraged me to make a change. So I believe it was late 2017, I found out I was um, expecting my second child. And that in that moment, I had made a commitment to myself to change careers. So I took the real estate licensing class, I believe, January 2018, if you're following this timeline. And I was quickly licensed after that. 
I sold my property management business and then I transitioned to a real estate agent. Um, and then fearful that I wasn't going to perform to my expectations in the first year of real estate, I also obtained a certificate certification to educate students for property managing, management licensing. And as a bonus, um, I also became certified to teach trust accounting. But there I was, uh, licensed in real estate uh, my first year, nonetheless, and very pregnant and risking it all. I, I put my 15 years in property management and ownership of a small business to rest. And, you know, was starting over worth it? Was it worth the risk to me? I, I would say a thousand percent yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I definitely I'm always interested in why people choose the career paths that they choose. And the real estate market is something that is a very concerning issue for a lot of people right now. I know I know that just here locally, the housing market has gotten dramatically expensive. I mean, some people are wondering if they'll ever even be able to buy a home in this community. Uh, as somebody who's constantly involved in this space, could you just speak a little bit to why exactly the housing market has become so expensive? And is there a chance that that's going to change anytime soon? Right. So this is a great question. Um, and it has a quick answer, but of course, you know, an explanation would be helpful. Uh, the housing market is expensive because of low inventory and because of high buyer demand. Um, to elaborate on those major driving factors of low inventory, um, when demand, so when demand is greater than supply, we end up with what's referred to as the seller's market. People will hear that term, seller's market, buyer's market. So when you have more buyers than you do homes to sell, you are going to end up in a seller's market, which in turn creates this pricing spike. And everyone, what we found after the pandemic is everyone was moving within Montana or moving to Montana, but nobody was leaving Montana. Um, really the only folks, and I, I mean this in the best way, but the only folks leaving Montana were those going to Jesus. Nobody was leaving. Uh, shortly after the pandemic broke out, we found housing prices escalating on a weekly basis, which was very unprecedented. We'd, we hadn't seen this type of shift before. Um, in the past, prices would change by season when we had high season, low season, or they would change on an annual basis, but they weren't changing by the week. They certainly weren't escalating by the week. Uh, real estate agents were having difficulty pricing homes for their, for their clients who were selling homes. And um, on the same, in the same regard, appraisers were also facing an issue trying to find comparable sales with the rapid pricing escalation. So... Why did we have this low, what, what factors created this low inventory? And several come, in, come to mind, but the top four would be in no particular order. Um, the first would be the low inventory contributor of out-of-state buyers. Um, people are now able to work remotely. And once they were given this freedom to work remotely, we saw a trend of movement more so to the Western states uh, particularly, I would say at the top of mind, Montana, Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming, these states were all booming with an influx of out-of-state buyers moving in. And buyers were moving out of 
metropolitan areas, urban areas, and gravitating more to open spaces and smaller communities. And this influx of out-of-state buyers certainly increased buyer demand. Now, a second factor would, I believe, would be attributed to lifestyle. The pandemic changed the way people live and how they want to live. Uh, not only were people wanting a change of residence after being locked down in their homes, they were wanting an entirely different atmosphere. So for example, I helped some families move to Montana and they were looking for like a compound-like setting. They, they wanted their parents there, their in-laws, aunts and uncles, and all the, all the extended family members. And compound living was becoming far more common than I'd ever seen it before. Also, we found people who wanted to be more self-sufficient and they wanted to learn to live entirely off their land. And these buyer behavior shifts in the past two years were also unprecedented. So, you know, we, we were all having to adapt and these lifestyle changes ultimately added to, to an activity spike in our buyer pool. Um, with all of these new lifestyles people were picking up, Montana was a perfect place for these new lifestyles people wanted to adapt. Uh, and then, you know, the third, the third factor, I would say, and, and this is just a very short note on this, um, because it's, it's such a, it's a very detailed topic, but the short answer would be that the foreclosure moratorium also added to this issue of low inventory because we had no foreclosures. There were no foreclosures to offer people, which is something we'd also never seen before. There's always been foreclosed properties that we can offer to buyers, and, and that just wasn't the case. And then lastly, of these major factors that contributed to low inventory and a high buyer spike um, was a significant slowdown in new construction. So whether it was labor and material shortages and or factory shutdowns, new construction wasn't moving like it was prior to the pandemic. All of these elements drove construction costs up over and above um, the cost per square foot of any existing home. So while existing homes were outrageous in price, the cost to build a home was even more than that. Um, so, you know, we were left with, you know, if, if we had to, a client build a home, we, we had to give them the harsh reality of, yes, you can, here's a piece of land and you can build a home here, but it is going to be more than an existing home, which is already really difficult to find. And it is already, very expensive. So, you know, overall, this lack of inventory and high demand of buyers was and still is the cause of our expensive housing prices. And I've recently noticed a small, and I mean a very small reprieve in this high buyer activity. And, and we have seen more homes come on the market, but it's, it's still very much a seller's market. And when I say a small reprieve, I'm talking you know, we'd see a home that was popular among buyers and you would see 20 to 30 offers went in the craze of all of this. And now we're looking at maybe five to 10 offers. So still very, still very competitive and still very much a seller's market. Yeah. So I appreciate you illuminating this a little bit and kind of adding some context to, you know, this issue, because I don't think that as far as the ins and outs, the particulars of why the market has become so expensive is truly common knowledge. I mean, I'm sure it is to people inside the industry, but to the everyday person, 
we just see the housing market go up. We don't always know exactly the reasons why it's happening. You know, one of the things that I was interested about, because I, I had heard some speculation on this, was that one of the reasons that the housing market was in fact going up was because, you know, again, there was less inventory. And part of that was due to the fact of the rise in Airbnbs. There was just more and more of these properties in every community. And because of that, there's just less places for people to live. Uh, in your experience, have you seen Airbnbs being a problem for the market at all? Okay, so, you know, when we say Airbnb is just to, you know, bring some clarity to this, we're, we're talking about vacation or short-term rentals, and they've been dubbed Airbnbs because there's a popular app, Airbnb, and that's where you, you know, find these short-term or vacation rentals. Um, you can also find them on VRBO, and there's other platforms now. Um, and do I feel like they're problematic? I, I guess my short answer, especially from Azulians, is no. And, you know, I understand some are going to argue that Airbnbs or short-term rentals in a market with a near 0% vacancy rate for renters is only compounding the lack of housing. Well, I can certainly see how from a surface point of view, someone might feel that this is problematic. However, I'd like to kind of break this down a little bit because that's a, you know, like I said, it's a very surface point of view. So. Airbnbs, for those who aren't aware, are required to register with the city of Missoula. And while you may have a handful of those who don't abide by, abide by those registration rules, you'll find most are compliant and have registered with the city of Missoula. So having said that, said that we have approximately 300 Airbnbs registered with the city of Missoula. And these Airbnbs belong to small mom and pop operations or small investors of maybe one to three rental homes. And they're intended as a nest egg or you know, a long-term retirement plan. These, these by no means, and it is extremely rare, especially that, I, where I've, that I've seen here uh, in Missoula, is for a large investor to come throw up a big complex and, and have them all be short-term rental units. So that said, you know, I, I personally have clients who have vacation rentals or Airbnbs, and a lot of them, what I'm finding, because we have such an expensive market, have to purchase homes and house hack them. So what I mean by that is they're purchasing a house and they're converting this home into a duplex or a triplex, and the homeowner you know, lives in one unit and, and rents the adjoining units. And Airbnbs are gaining popular, popularity among landlords who are neighbors of their own rental units. And the biggest reason is because they don't have neighbors year round, but they're still able to meet a fiscal bottom line. Um, and it's important to note that most, if not all, as I mentioned before, large scale investors in Missoula are building upwards of 100 to 500 units at a time intended solely for long-term renters. So this brings me to another point and, you know, everybody's going to have their opinion, but the fact is that, you know, I think when we make Airbnbs out to be the culprit for decreased vacancy rates in Missoula, we're looking in the wrong place. Where I really think we're going to resolve this issue is with the city's rezoning approval process. So for example, 
recently, a, a major investor applied to build approximately 700 units in Missoula. And the city approved roughly 400 of the units, and then they denied the remaining 300. This denial, this denial came after this investor had already passed all the testing requirements to obtain full city approval. And it's mind blowing to think that just that one rezone alone by the city for an additional 300 units could have replaced the 300 registered Airbnbs in Missoula. And aside from the issue, you know, aside from issues with general contractors are facing with building expenses for large scale projects, like the one just described, I feel like our city may have, you know, be a little bit to blame for this lack of rental housing in Missoula. We have the investors, but we need the rezoning approval where it's warranted. Okay. And, and so I, I do know that adding construction you know, across the city and across the area is definitely a top priority for many as, you know, as a way to to fix this housing crisis. And while we are waiting for, you know, more housing to become available, there are a lot of first time buyers that are trying to figure out what exactly they should do in the meantime. I mean, obviously saving up for the house is the most important thing, you know, whatever, you know, whatever your finances currently are, but you know, you work with first-time buyers all the time. Is there anything in particular that you would say to potential first-time buyers as like um, advice to help them get ready while they're, you know, waiting for the market to kind of cool off a little bit? Yes, I think this is a great question because a lot of people don't know where to start. And, you know, by the time you're actually ready to take step one, you've probably viewed a million homes on Zillow or Trulia or Realtor.com and you're motivated, and you're ready for action, but you don't know where to go. So what I'll say is you're first going to want to meet with a lender. And um, I highly recommend you meet with a local lender. And if you want to know why I advocate for local lenders, you can carve out an hour of your time and give me a call. If you're looking for lender recommendations, it's best to reach out to a real estate professional. And when I say that, I mean real estate agent for those recommendations, they're gonna know the best people in which to refer your way. Um, your lender will review your current financial snapshot and help you get to the finish line. And at that time, you may or may not be prepared to buy a home, but that lender is going to help you establish goals to get there. So, you know, a lot of people miss the step first, but what I'll say is in a competitive market, it's nearly impossible to win a bid on a home without first being pre-approved by a lender. So that is first and foremost, what you need to do to get started. And once you've received that pre-approval letter from a lender, then begin your search for a real estate professional. And, you know, I, I do, I recommend people interview real estate agents to help you find you know, to help you find someone who jives well with your personality and your goals, you know, even the most seasoned and reputable agent is not for everybody. You'll likely be spending a good amount of time with this person. So it's important to work with someone who's going to work well with you. Next, um, gosh, I mean, you'll start searching for properties at that point. And, you know, your real estate agent will know what you're searching for and can send you listings as soon as they come available. That's a really big perk working with a real estate agent is them being able to shoot off, a, you know, in a text or an email, a new property as it comes available so that you have it right away and you're able to compete with everybody else. 
um, it's an, it's a very important step in a fast moving market. Otherwise, you know, by the time it populates on your Zillow app, it's probably too late. And so, I mean, ultimately your lender and real estate agent are going to be working closely with you until you find and secure a home. Your real estate agent's going to be showing you homes, placing competitive offers, engaging in negotiations, educating and helping you through the contingencies, and then celebrating with you when you're at closing for your first home. And of course, this is a grossly concise version of what actually takes place during a transaction, but it illustrates somewhat of a general outline. One strong piece of advice that I will leave you with is that, especially for first-time home buyers, but all buyers really, is to communicate. And so ask all the questions. There are no insignificant questions. I personally love to educate my buyers and I welcome questions with open arms. And I'd rather have my clients have clarity and make education educated decisions based on that clarity rather than to just go with the motions and trust everything that their agent is doing. You know, significant is a, is definitely an important word here because I, I think, you know, someone in your particular position right now, that is a very significant position to be in because there is a lot of trepidation around, you know, buying a home, you know, especially with the amount of money that we're talking about, people are making life altering decisions. And due to that fact, people are going to be balls of stress. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of tense conversations, you know, depending on someone's financial status and a lot of uncertainty. And I'm sure that's a lot of emotions to juggle, you know, being a real estate agent. So why do you personally like the experience of helping people buy and sell their homes? Like, um, what is it particularly about this field that, you know, just drew you to wanting to do this for the rest of your life? Sure. So, you know, one thing is that I appreciate that this career is not mundane. I'm consistently being challenged as the industry evolves and I get to work with some of the most fascinating people. All and all very different in personality and each with their unique story. Um, my clients are really what makes it worth it. I love the relationship aspect of real estate. And while some agents might love those cash, quick close, slam dunk deals, I've done those and I've walked away with a sense of emptiness. And I realized that while I'm grateful that, that, that my client had such an effortless purchase, in the same regard, I, I feel like I, I didn't get to establish that quality relationship I create with clients who I work with for a longer period of time. So I love the relationship aspect. And of course, you know, I, I love real estate. So, you know, homes tell a compelling story and each in their in a respective way. And I admire, you know, the original character and creativity that comes with home design and interiors. Whether it's a mansion or a tiny home, they all encompass a unique flair. And I live for that variety of originality. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, real estate, real estate's what I've known and I've studied from a very long, young age. And, and I don't see that changing. I really value what I do. And I find great satisfaction in successfully helping my clients meet their real estate goals. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Carly. I, I really do appreciate you coming on with us today and talking about, you know, the different ins and outs of the market and, you know, why it is that you are involved in it. 
I, again, this is a conversation that I feel as though definitely needs to be had a lot more because, you know, it's a very important piece of American culture is buying a home. And so I do appreciate you coming on and kind of talking to us about it a little bit today. For those who are interested, where could people find you online if they want to get in touch with you? Sure. People can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or I do have a website, which is my first and last name. K-A-R-L-I-H-U-G-H-E-S dot com. Perfect. And for those who are interested, I'll have links to those. Um, to I'll have links in the description of this episode. So go ahead and just click on the description of this episode and you'll see some links underneath and you'll be able to get in contact with Carly if you would like. Carly, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I truly appreciate it. Thanks, Desmond. Thank you. And to thank all my listeners for sticking with us, we're going to take one final break and we'll be right back after some thoughts. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me through this episode of Independent Thought. And so first, like I kind of teased in the beginning of the episode, I want to address why I was a little late today uh, or this week, rather. So I unfortunately came, uh, well, I shouldn't, how I want to rephrase this. I unfortunately had to deal with a broken tooth, uh, which is incredibly painful. Uh, I, if you've never experienced a broken tooth before, I definitely do not recommend this. Um, it is, it's pretty, pretty awful. And so episode had to wait for about a day. So I do apologize about that, but you know, uh, thankfully getting it out a day late is not the worst thing in the world, but I do appreciate all the subscribers who did reach out to me today and ask me why the episode wasn't out yet. It's good to know that people are, you know, are aware that Monday is the day that independent thought comes out and they were wondering where it was. So I, I kind of appreciate the fact that some people checked in. Uh, also, I probably gonna be mentioning this a lot going forward. So if you get a little annoyed by me constantly mentioning it, I uh, just bear with me, but I am doing more things on my YouTube channel right now. I will be putting out a lot more content on YouTube as I try to have almost like a two, I guess, two track podcast going forward. So there'll be stuff going on here and then stuff going on YouTube. So if you are not already, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you are subscribed to the YouTube channel, please click the little bell because I'm noticing that YouTube does a terrible job at letting people know when new videos drop. So if you click the bell, you get a little notification. There won't be a bunch of them. Don't worry. I don't post too much on there. So hopefully not a big deal. Now what's coming up next with the podcast is we are going to be having a couple different episodes over the next week. I'm going to be having my candidate episode for the month of October will be coming out in a couple of days. So be on the lookout for that. I'll be having my sit down with candidate Daniel Wilson great episode. Definitely do not miss that. And I'll be having another episode coming next Monday. So be on the lookout for that as well. If you also, if you're not currently, please follow me on Instagram at independent thought. That is the best place to keep up with this podcast as far as updates and just day-to-day -day stuff. I post a lot in my stories. So that is a great place to keep up with what's going on with this podcast. And if you want to support independent thought, there is a Patreon link in this episode description. So please click into the subscription and you should see my link to my Patreon. I am getting very close to getting 
um, hitting my goal for the number of patrons that I was looking to get before the year was over. So please help me get there if you are not currently a member of the Patreon. And now final thoughts on this, on my first topic. Uh, oh, I almost forgot. I apologize here. I forgot to thank my guest, Carly Hughes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I completely forgot. And uh, I, I definitely appreciate you taking the, the chance and coming on your, your Radical Friends podcast. So I definitely thank you for that. You know, I hope that you don't get too much hate uh, for coming on to a political podcast. But, you know, again, thank you for coming on and talking about the, the real estate market. And hopefully we'll be able to get you back on again in the future. But yeah, final thoughts on this, on the subject from the first segment. Striketober is something that I first saw on Breaking Points, uh, which is a great YouTube show that I watch. One of the best places to get news as far as I'm concerned. I'll probably be shouting them out for a long time. I first came across it because Crystal Ball, who's one of the who's one of the co-hosts on that show, did a monologue on it a couple of weeks ago. And I was I was floored because I had heard about the strikes in Alabama, Frito-Lay, Nabisco. I heard about all of them, but when I heard about all of the other ones that were going on, it just it just finally like just hit me. Just like the fact that there were so many people across the country who are finally more or less standing up for themselves which is you know, something that really inspires me. It's the reason why I chose to cover that Amazon story back in season three, which was earlier this year, about those workers who are trying to you know, become unionized down in Bessemer. And I, 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 truly, I, I truly feel like that is something that just needs to happen. Now, I know not all strikes end up with workers getting exactly what they want or getting, or getting anything, but I, I feel as though right now, if there was ever a time to mobilize and to, and to, I guess, stand in solidarity, this is that moment, you know, for as long as I can remember, it's been a take it or leave it situation with employers and employees, employers had all the power in the world. They say like, Hey, this is what it is. Either you're on board or you can get out. And so many people were afraid of losing their income that they just took whatever they could possibly get. And then they would just, try not to complain about it, even though they were gritting their teeth through it the whole way through. And, and that shouldn't always be the case. I'm not saying that work should be, you know, quote unquote, easier or that, you know, people, you know, shouldn't be thankful to have jobs, but jobs should also be thankful to have workers and they should be treated as such and they should be paid as such. And I feel as though employers in this country have gotten a little too comfortable treating their employees like crap and paying them as little as humanly possible. And I am glad to see that people are now standing up for themselves. And I hope, I hope that more people will take an opportunity to go out there and support these workers by sharing these stories. We can share other things on social media besides memes and horoscope nonsense and whatever's going on with some, with the squid game, just is let, let's post some real stuff on social media for a change, everyone. Just you can take a break, post some real stuff occasionally. So that's my, my final pitch to everyone. Please share this information, share this episode, uh, share it on Facebook. For those of you who are still active on Facebook, 
Facebook is definitely, unfortunately, because, you know, I know how we all feel about Facebook, but it is still the largest social media platform out of all the major ones. So TikTok hasn't overtaken it yet. So share this on Facebook where the most people are. But, you know, with all that being said, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode today. We'll be back very shortly with a new episode. So as always, stay tuned. And if you are not already, please hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss the next episode of Independent Thought. I'll see you in the next one. Have a good week. Thank you.